You're in some motel room. You just you just wake up and you're in in a motel room. There's the key. It feels like maybe it's just the first time you've been there, but perhaps you've been there for a week, three months. It's it's kind of hard to say. I don't I don't know. It's just an anonymous room. Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture podcast broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with another Nolan retrospective podcast. The first one in months, because we did, uh, Justin and I did our po- uh, podcast on the fo- uh, following back in September, was it? Yeah, at the very beginning of September. Yeah. The and- last time I was on this show to begin with. And I blame myself for not like being uh, uh, having due diligence to get all these out and everything because we the plan was to get all the pod all these podcasts on Kristen Nolan out before Dunkirk, which comes out in July. So we have about four months, four months left. I mean, that's enough time. Yeah, it's plenty enough time. Like considering considering after uh, after um, Insomnia, it's pretty much all the really really good. Nolan movies. Yeah, and not saying the one we're doing right now is a no, good one. Or this, is this is tremendous. Yes. As you can tell from the title, we're doing a review of Memento. So let's not waste any more time. Let's backtrack a little bit and get into Memento right now. <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> like i was gonna question like do we have like uh, i was unsure how should we review this movie do we review it in the movie's playing order or do we review this story in chronological order do we start at the end of my notes and work towards the front i think i think you gotta take it in in order of how it's presented in the movie okay because i mean that's how we understand it yes even though like there is i think there's like uh i know it was on the dvd i'm not sure if it's on the blu-ray but i think there is a chronological cut made is there of the movie i know that i know there's definitely like a chart that was scene by scene of where they what happens in chronological order yeah but before we get into that, um, how did you hear about Memento in the first place? Oh, God, this takes me back to my college years with you and uh, our friend Lee Carlson. Yes. Up in the, the snowy tundra of Oswego. Yes. Um, this was like the summer before I, I watched literally. I think I in the summer of 2012, I watched every one of Nolan's movies in like the two and a half months that we had off. Mm-hmm. Um, because this was right before Dark Knight Rises was coming out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say, I think we had watched one of his movies up in Oswego. I'm like, I've never seen The Prestige and I've never seen Memento before. Mm-hmm. And luckily, right as I said that, uh, that summer, Netflix Online had The Prestige and they... 
uh, no, not the prestige. It had Memento and the following on Netflix. So I, I took one weekend and I just steamrolled through those two movies. Mm. Loved every moment of it. And of course, the following is a movie you can watch in, in about an hour. Yeah. Which I think I watched this and the following the same day. Mm. So um, yeah, that's how I first heard about Memento. And uh, I had heard before I watched it that it kind of was a movie told in reverse. Mm. But I don't think I, I knew that about a quarter of the movie is the black and white part, which is in chronological, chronological order. Yeah. So I was I went into the movie thinking that every scene was told in reverse. So I was a little bit confused when I first saw it. And then once I went online and read about the movie, it sort of cleared everything up for me, and I understood it a lot more. However, I went about five years without seeing it. That was the only time I saw it until we just got done finished watching it. Mm. So, so you've only seen it twice then? Yes. Though. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. <laughs> but anything else? Not really, no. Um, my experience with this movie, because um, I remember the poster... Of it with like Guy Pierce in the foreground, and he has like the multiple small images of him and Carrie Moss like going into the background and everything like that. I remember seeing that uh, times when I went to Hollywood Video, like after this movie came out in 2000. Millennials everywhere are asking, What's a Hollywood Video? Yeah, like you just have to go to the store to get that. Yes, and and that's sidebar uh, I do appreciate the fact that we're part of the last generation of either A. Not having internet readily available, B, not having cable readily available, and C, like going to like Blockbuster and going to a physical store to get home media. And even though we're kind of considered millennials, like we're part like the part of the millennial generation and everything like that, but it's, we're in the weird like kind of crossroads of pop culture and everything like that. Anyway, so I think my mom rented it. I did not watch it. Um... But like you, knowing, finding out more about Christopher Nolan and wanting to see more of his work, it was then um, heard about this movie, and then I believe I rented it from the library to uh, check it out. And I knew about because like I'd seen his other movies, I knew about the nonlinear structure being kind of a trademark of his. So I was like, all right, maybe it's gonna be something like that. Watched the movie, and I'm like, wait, what's going on? But then like 15 minutes into, I'm like. Okay, I know where this is, know what the deal is, knew what the idea of the structure is, and then just enjoyed it. And then by the end of it, I was just like, wow, that was really something. And I've been a fan of this movie ever since. It's not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but like, we'll eventually get to that. And because you and, I, uh, you and I have the same uh, affinity for one of his movies in particular, which we'll eventually get to. But before, like, like, before anything else, let's jump into the movie itself. I like the, and kind of like how we've been doing a little bit for the past few episodes, we're kind of like doing like a major beat by beat of the movie, like breakdown, and then we talk about the characters at the end. Um, and like the first thing I kind of like noticed about this time around is David Julian's score, the very opening movie, as well as like the blue text of the of the opening titles. And I was watching one of the behind the scenes featurettes talking about like how. Nolan one just blue, just very cold aesthetic the entire movie. 
And like the production designer was like, and like costume designer was like, yeah, cool, we'll go with that, but let's let's kind of expand it, just not just be all monochromatic and everything else. But it's this time around, it seemed like there's so much like teal everywhere. Like his shirt is like that. The signage of like the discount inn is like that. The dumpster behind, like in front of Natalie's house, is like that. And realized like, wow, this is really blue. And even like, and then like. Having that going in my mind when I see the text and everything. The first time around when you're seeing the the opening image of the Polaroid undeveloping. I guess that's how you phrase it. What did you think about that during that opening moment? You're seeing that it all the chemicals coming back together to its normal self and everything like that. How do you feel about that? Uh, I mean, we just listened to a portion of the... the director's commentary track and he said that's how he wanted to start off the movie just mm-hmm. like take everything work it backwards because that's pretty much how the the movie works and i think it's very appropriate he cho- he chose that style of of storytelling to present it in the opening shot like that because one of the things about christopher nolan's movies is he gives away a lot about the movie in its opening Yes. No matter which one it is, whether it's the Batman movies, whether it's Inception, um, that opening scene, you have to pay attention to. The, literally, the first line of the prestige is, are you, are you watching, watching closely? closely? So, I mean, and you do. You do have to watch these movies closely um, uh, because they do tell a lot about what the movie is going to be about. This one is about how, uh, once again, he's playing with time. And really starting, I think this is the first time where he really works backwards in a movie, where he has, he presents the ending to you at the beginning, Mm. and then he allows the movie to tell you how we got to there. Yeah. I mean, like, even with, like, the following, um, the interrogation that kind of, in the opening narration is Mm -hmm. near the ending, but it's not the exact ending because he has that entire scene with the uh, detective and everything explaining how all these events came to be so like this time we actually we see literally the ending of the movie and then we work our way up to it and and so during this scene that everything's happening reverse we see in like camera like the the Polaroid undeveloped slides right into the Polaroid camera it's taken we see blood kind of being moved back into place and everything like that. We see a gun fly into Guy Pierce's hand, and you're like, you're like, wait, what is going on? We did not stumble into a Star Wars movie that, that no normal person should be able to fly guns into their hands like that, despite how cool that would be. There's a time of civil war in Guy Pierce's mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Why hasn't Guy Pierce been in a Star Wars movie yet? I don't know. To be honest, this is the movie I think I've ever seen of his. Uh, he, he was in this. He was actually in the Time Machine remake. Go figure. Um, Prometheus that came out a couple years ago. He's in the Hurt Locker in the very beginning. He's been in a bunch of stuff. And it's just like, oh, L.A. Confidential. He was tremendous mm-hmm. and he's the lead. And that's something you would like. That. Yeah, add it to the list. Yeah, I mean, all right. It's in a library collection. Okay. I only need to say three names and I know you want to see it. All right, you have... Guy Pierce, huh? Kevin Spacey, Ooh. Russell Crowe. Enough said. Oh. 
40s gangster movie mystery. I might have to do that next week. There we go. Uh, and so... But keep it confidential. <sighs> and Danny DeVito. <laughs> Uh, so everything's playing back in reverse and I love this one moment because we see a shell casing fly like go back in reverse and it's funny since Nolan is such a filmmaking purist person who shoots on film and everything like that he shot that he didn't shoot everything just forward and then reverse and post he shot it with a reverse magazine and everything so he had everything play out in normal motion on the day but so when they played it back in editing it would play back in reverse hmm. now the shell casing was wasn't done incorrectly because you couldn't just have it done perfectly in the right place and everything like that. So they had to like do that like in reverse order, but they shot it with a reverse magazine, so they had to make that one shot in post to put that in forward motion because everything else was in reverse motion. Like, oh crap, we didn't <laughs> shoot that. We should have shot that normally instead. So the only optical effect of it is something that's supposed to be going reverse, but it's actually going forward. Yes. I, uh, I don't have a diagram to explain that. I wish I did, because but this is an auditory podcast. So they shot in forward motion, and in post-pro, they had to reverse, reverse it. it. Because, but they sh- because they should oh, have God. shot it in forward motion initially. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a low-budget movie, and it was shot very quickly. I, I, I understand that. So, and ends the scene ends with a scream and somebody getting shot in the face. And you're like, oh, okay... This is a, uh, this is a little strange, and then we see a black and white sequence. It cuts to black and white of Lenny in different clothes talking about it in voiceover, saying he's just in a normal room, and then it cuts back to color, and it's just like a few minutes uh, earlier, and you're like, wait, what's going on here? And then and that's when the structure of the movie starts to explain itself in a very delicate manner, and then we see Lenny, Lenny like finally clock Teddy with the gun and he's about to shoot him. Now this is a question I brought up the fact like Teddy is known knows that Lenny's killed at least two people. Three people. He killed one of the muggers. Yep. If if we're going by like Jimmy for sure and possibly a person a year previous to the other the other assailant in the original assault on his wife. Right, that's correct. Don't you think Teddy would have struggled more and, or been more afraid of the fact that Lenny was going to kill him at this point? Yeah, uh, you know, you you probably would expect that, especially if he's a cop. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, why, not to go into the plot holes, you know, right off the bat, but, like, is, isn't he carrying, like, a gun or anything to keep himself protected? I know he's undercover, so. He took, like, Lenny took his gun. It's in the trunk. Oh, that's right. With the money. Yes. But um, but even still, like, shouldn't he have been like, uh, like, or like, done more to calm Lenny down in that situation? I, I just found that a little, a little strange. And so, Lenny shoots him, takes a picture of him, and everything. That's pretty much how the movie ends. But that's where we really the beginning and everything like that. Like, oh, this is, this is strange. And then we get we flash we. I mean, we can't say we flash back. We just cut to the next scene, which is the previous scene. Oh, God, this is so weird. <laughs> it's funny. I'm part of a Facebook fan page talking about, like, it's all about movies and everything like that. And one of the guys is like, I love that movie. And he listens to the podcast. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Uh, and he's, I'm like, oh, I'm doing a review for my show. And he's like, good luck. And I'm like, and I didn't think about the time. Like, 
Why do you always say good luck? And we're just doing a movie review. 15 minutes in, I'm like, oh, God, this is why I said good luck, because this is going to be a really tough to talk about. Yeah, it's almost like you have to go – it's almost like you're talking about two different movies. Almost. Yeah, almost. Not quite. No, but we hear about – we get we, first time we get to see Sammy Jenkins' name, and then we talk – we – we're introduced to the condition that Lenny has. He's talking to Bert. And it's funny, the actor playing Bert in in the the guy who runs or at least monitors the motel plays Detective Flass in uh, Batman Begins. And I wonder if he likes falafel. Uh, he probably, he I bet he likes falafel. And it's funny. Joe Pozzoliano, who plays Teddy in this movie, was offered the role of Flash in Batman Begins. Hmm. But since it was just like such a nothing part, like Joe Pozzoliano thought it was kind of like an insult that he was offered that, and he said no right out outright, and then no one's like okay, and then just tapped the other actor who's playing Bert. And it's, <laughs> and it's like it's funny that Bert likes the fact that he uh, Lane likes t- telling about his condition because he just sits through it, and it's probably maybe. The 15th time at this point that he's dealt with it, I mean, if you had dealt with this person on a regular basis, would you have been like, yeah, I know, Lenny? Or would you just, or would you mess with the guy? <laughs> would I mess with the guy? Have you not known me? <laughs> All right. That, that's... No, I probably wouldn't mess with the guy. No, because you, you, you would feel bad for him a yes. little bit. Um... I certainly wouldn't charge him for uh, another room. But Two weeks after he's checked out. Yeah, but like also like we find out that Bert's a guy like who keeps a lookout for Jimmy as he deals drugs at this motel in the beginning. So he's not a I don't say he's not a nice guy, but the dude's a criminal to begin with. So he's more his moral standings are a little shaky for sure. Mm-hmm. But um, that is kind of a dick move though that he's charging <laughs> for two rooms. <laughs> now I wonder is he charging him like uh, like. Like, is he just giving a weekly rate and everything at the end of the week? Or is he, like, being a dick, like, oh, yeah, 40 bucks every day for two rooms? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those questions you ask yourself. But not to, like, to, like rip open the plot holes or anything like that. That's why you should get a receipt. I should write that down. Yeah. As Lenny points out at one point. <laughs> um... Then we get to see uh, Lenny's tattoos for the first time, like in one of the black and white sequences, and we see like all the facts that he has tattooed on him and everything like that. Now, how did you react the first time you saw that image? Uh, because this is one of the things that like it's always like indelible with this movie that you remember guy yeah. using those tattoos. It's oh, I'm trying to remember back to the the first time I saw it. It was it certainly set the tone for the movie. Like mm. yeah, as if because. You see the opening scene, and you see he kills the guy, but you don't know why. You don't know why he kills the guy. No. So you're just like, oh, a random killing. Yeah. Okay, and now the movie's working backwards. This is really strange. And then you get to the probably the, the first big reveal of the movie, and it's got every detail, including the big one, which is John G. raped and killed, raped and murdered my wife, mm. and that's sort of and it's. The largest tattoo on his chest, mm. and it's the only one that goes straight across. Mm. So it definitely has a lot of significance, and you see it in reverse for a while. They, well, they 
the big reveal of what it actually says is the shot when he's standing in front of the mirror. Yeah. But you see it for most of that scene beforehand, but you can't really make out what it says no. until he walks in front of the mirror. So you're just like, you're sort of just like wondering what the really big tattoo says. And then once it hits you, it hits you pretty hard. Yeah. And you're like, oh. And he explained why he did that in the first place. And it clicks why he does it and why he's been doing this. And then we cut to him meeting uh, Natalie for the first time. Played by Carrie Ann Moss. Um, is one of the weird things I noticed something like, on this viewing specifically. That Natalie's hair is very similar to Lenny's wife's hair. Mm-hmm. Like this kind of short dark sure. hair and... Uh, curly a little bit. Now, of course, we're talking about this is a very spoiler-heavy review and everything. We have to review, of course, we're going to talk about spoilers. This movie is like 17 years old, people, okay? (laughs) And so, (laughs) do you think Natalie suspects Jimmy's dead at this point? Do you think Natalie suspects Jimmy's dead at this point? Yes. Because she's known Leonard for a couple days, or at least two days. He's been wearing Jimmy's clothes and he has Jimmy's car. Mm. Yeah, I, I think looking back at it, the first scene and not not the scene in the bar, right at the end of the scene in the movie after it, chronologically, yeah. before it, when she sees... Uh, that's Jimmy's car, mm-hmm. but uh, Lenny's in it. Yeah. And then I think at the end of that scene, um, when he shows her the coaster, he says, or she says, It's in your You pocket. found it in your pocket? Yeah. And it's funny because I read the screenplay for the movie in preparation for this review. And one thing that Nolan does with his screenplays, like, for, like, for certain effects, he'll italicize certain uh, words in a sentence. Mm-hmm. You obviously put the most significant meaning of that sentence on that word. Like, if you look at The Dark Knight, a lot of, like, the jokes and everything like that, it was, like, has those italicized moments and everything like that. So the actor knows, oh, that's the most significant word. I, I'll put the most emphasis there. And that's one of those lines where it's, like, your pocket. And... And then, like, it kind of, like, you with this, the very first scene we're introduced to her at the diner, at the end of their relationship and everything, or at the end of their friendship, Natalie's helping him and everything like that, gives him the information, and she makes Lenny talk about his wife. And she says, like, not just, like, the words of it, but she says, like, bring up, like, think about the memories, think about the feelings you were associated with her. And I always kind of question that. Is it just because she can have this kind of like, almost like through osmosis, like how she, he feels towards his wife, that she can kind of feel that towards Jimmy? Or like, I, I kind of question why does she ask him that? I understand other than expositional reasons for the audience, why would that character ask that? Hmm. And I know I feel like I'm taking a crowbar to this movie and everything like that, but I think that's part of, of review. I mean, I still enjoy this movie regardless, but I, I will... Well, as, as we'll find out the deeper we get into this movie, at this point, it's almost like she's just 
having fun with him. Yeah. Like, she wants to cause as much havoc to this guy's life as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost as if um, he's just trying to cause as much pain for him as possible. Mm-hmm. Because not only does he mention his wife, she sets up the murder of... Um, Teddy. Of Teddy. Yeah. Who is really the only person in the world looking out for Leonard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does exactly what she sets out to do halfway through the movie, which is just completely ruin him. Mm. And because, like, after that, she just, we never see her in that story's chronological order ever again. Mm-hmm. But we, obviously we see her going back as a reverse. And so... Next flashback scene, we see uh, Lenny as what his job was before his accident, before where he can't, like, and like, it's like, I don't know if we said it before, but like, he can't make new memories after his accident, at the accident that caused, his, that left his wife uh, dead. He received a head injury and he's never been able to make any new memories past that point. That ever since then, his memory only goes up to a certain point, which is that attack. And he forgets everything after a little while. That's why he has the tattoos, that's why he has notes, etc., etc. And so in the first, in this black and white scene, we see what he was previously, which is a claims um, investigator for an insurance company. And it's interesting that I was thinking about it, because obviously, following and, and Memento is very film noir. It's a kind of a mystery and everything like that. And it, has, it plays with those tropes. Now, there's a very famous film noir called Double Indemnity, where movie starts with the near the end and main character is telling the audience on a, in a voiceover what happened and everything like that he also works for an insurance company and Edward G. Robinson's an insurance claim investigator and he's the one investigating the main character's like kind of dealings that he's been doing with a, a woman a femme fatale very much like how Natalie is in this movie and it's only this time watching it I'm like holy shit this is like double indemnity. And I'm like, oh my god, I think we just found ourselves a transformer. <laughs> yes, I had a Marky Mark moment as I'm jotting down notes today. It was, it was quite humorous. I thought. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm an army of one on that on that thought. And it's interesting in the the screenplay because whenever we see Leonard in the flashbacks to his previous life, he always says cheap suit. Now I wonder what that why they think it is. Do you think it's just to show Lenny as like not being in like obviously very different from what the clothes he's wearing now, or do you think it's just because she's trying to show what kind of character he is? Probably trying to show what character he is, because mm-hmm. uh, as we find out, he's an insurance investigator, mm-hmm. but the way he handles the one case in particular. With uh, Sammy Jerkins. Hmm. It's kind of... I'm an insurance investigator, but I'm working for the insurance company. I really don't care about you. Yeah. And, and he just seems like a very shallow person and yeah. kind of like very self-centered and everything like that. And even like the kind of like the one or two interactions he has with his wife like is not like most appealing or anything like That's that. That's a good point. We, The moments we get with... Him and his wife is just like the the short little cuts to her uh, alone in the kitchen. I think the only time we see the two of them 
together is the little um, teaser scene where he um, pinches her on her thigh, pinches in air quotes on that. Yeah. And um, the book. The book. He busts her chops about the book that she's she keeps. Oh reading right, over that and over. too. The book, and of course, obviously, when uh, when they're both assaulted. Yeah. And like, and she even calls him like, "You don't be a prick about it," because like he's busting her chops about reading a book that she's read a thousand times. Like, the, like the covers are gone. Like, the spine is the only thing keeping that book together. Mm-hmm. And and saying like, not saying it's the most, not saying it's not a not uh, unloving relationship or anything like that. But it definitely seems like that. Like the happy go lucky. You don't get the feeling that this is a relationship where. There was a lot of love. Yeah. I, I'm, I, again, going back to what you're saying, not saying that it, it's not there. It's just you don't see it. No. And the best method in storytelling, as we all know, is showing. Yeah, and, and show, don't, don't tell. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned like those kind of like snippets that we see of Georgia Fox, who plays uh, Leonard's wife, and she would go on to like have a big career on CSI years uh, like a year later, or even like that year, like CSI started and she was on it. As a reoccurring character, um, as Sarah Seidel. There we go. That, there's my uh, bar tribute there for you. Um, yeah, Sarah Seidel. Stuart Seidel. Yes. Um, and, like, we see her, like, in the kitchen. We see her in the garden and everything like that. It's handheld. And, like, it's, like, light leases. Are, it's very, like, kind of, like, very dreamy and everything. And it's funny because you look at that and... You see the cinematography, like, in some of the scenes, like, Interstellar look very similar and everything, especially when the sun rises and, um, uh, I'm trying to remember Matthew McConaughey's character's name in Interstellar, uh... Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> like, right. looking out on and, uh, over the fields and everything. And even, like, I, I imagine that, I just remember that moment in Man of Steel when we, like, it's the scene where, uh, it's after the bus accident and... The Kents are listening to the boy's mother, like, chastising and saying, I know what your son did and everything like that. And it was trying to show, like, the Kent farm very serene and everything like that. For some reason, those images came back to mind to me. But there will be more Batman and Superman references in this movie that I'll get to in a little bit. As a claims investigator, we see uh, Leonard deal with a case of Sammy Jenkins, who also had an accident and he can't make new memories. And... The whole point of his story is to see if conditioning is real, or is he, or this was just Sammy being polite every time somebody came to the door. Really, the whole conceit of that story is that do we lie to ourselves or anything like that, or was he really not making new memories, or did he even exist at all? Which that was a question I was going to ask you. Did Sammy That's... even exist? Well, I think he existed. Because the only person who we know not to exist uh, is Sammy Jenkins' wife. Yeah. Yeah, that one we know for sure did not exist mm-hmm. ever at all. Um, just a figment of or a recreation from Leonard's in the imagination. But Sammy Jenkins, I think, existed. Mm-hmm. And his case... I'm pretty sure his case had to have been a real case because I think there would have needed – I don't think that Leonard would have just been able 
to survive and come up with this entire mechanism for um, living his life had he not known about some an actual person who also had this the same condition right so that's why I think he existed mm. and because we have like when Sammy's story is getting wrapped up near the end of the movie where we see him in a hospital being taken care of there is like a flash frame of Lenny sitting in the chair in Sammy's place it's very brief and everything like that and it's another technique that I'll get into in a little bit and everything like that so we're introduced that and like the whole story is that Leonard does not believe that Sammy has this condition or he believes that he could theoretically make new memories that it's not it's a mental thing it's a mental thing not a physical thing so the insurance company would not would not be would not um, be liable for the cost of that and so that's what the whole conceit of that story is and the whole time we were hearing about Sammy Jenkins is while Lenny is doing a homemade tattoo on his leg about a drug dealer through by breaking over a pen and doing it himself and he's talking on the phone now I thought about this this time how does Lenny know how to do like I assume I guess it's watching tattoo artist that he decided that's how he figured out how to do his own homemade tattoo yeah it's pretty much just ink just hot ink at that hot point hot ink and inside just, of a, a needle yeah and um and it just, just like just th- looking at that, like how crude that is compared to everything, the rest of the tattoos on his body. I'm just like, I watch. I'm like, oh god. Now, we do not know who's on the phone for the longest time. Mm-hmm. We later find out that it's Teddy on the phone. Now, do you think Teddy's really listening, or do you think he just puts the phone down and just lets Lenny talk? I think he's really listening. Okay, because like he brings up near the end of the movie. Um, this goes on about Sammy Jenkins and all that story and everything like that. Like, if this has been going on for so long, like, how could you really listen to that story over and over again? Uh, and that's a good question, but also, I mean, he has been with the guy for, what, three years? Two, two, at least two years. At least two years. So, I mean, by now he's pretty used to dealing with Leonard. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me. It's, it's just, I've just got to put up with this. Right. And which I thought about this time, like, do you think is Teddy also in the hotel on the, like on one of the phones from like room to room or is he like on a cell phone? Ooh, did they have cell phones with this made 99? Yeah. Like cell phones were around. Okay. They were not, not prominent. Like beepers are more. You, of don't, a... you don't see them really. In the movie, though, no, I don't think you see a single cell phone. I think he, I think he is staying in the hotel. Okay. Um, the only reason why I ask that is because, like, like, because later on in the movie, uh, he calls, and Leonard does not hang up because he discovers the healing wound of another tattoo and says, "Don't answer, never answer the phone." Mm-hmm. So he doesn't answer the phone as it rings, 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 goes dead. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and somebody slides a note under the ta- under the door, and it's and it is Teddy doing this. So he has to be within the near vicinity. Yeah. And everything like that. Anyway, so let's get back. Go on. The thing is, Teddy is never that far away from from Leonard. No. Throughout the movie. He, he tracks her. He tracks him to, uh, to Natalie's place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Although Leonard sets it up, he finds him at the uh, at the other motel where uh, he um, takes uh, Todd as a as a hostage. Yeah. So uh, there's one scene where um, he's even waiting for him in his car. Mm, yeah. Which is really creepy. Yes. <laughs> um, but getting back to the chronological order, because we're kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, we see a scene where Lenny wakes up in bed with Natalie and everything like that. Now, because she's seen him like with like all of his tattoos and everything like that. Do you think they had sex? Yeah, I, and I've, I think that's a definite because in the flash. Fact that chronologically happens before that, she says, "Who knows? You might even be my lover." Right. So I'm pretty sure, yes. Which is like, which I question. Like, not not saying it didn't happen. I'm just questioning psychologically. Like, saying this dude probably killed your boyfriend, driving around with his car and everything like that. Grant got rid of your possible competition by scaring Dot out of town. And so you sleep with him? I guess maybe... Like, how would you personally justify something like that? I don't know. I think... I think it's her way of trying to, like, get back at him. Because she knows how much he cared for... She knows how much... That he cared for his wife. Right. So it's kind of like. Uh, just like a way of, of getting even. Mm-hmm. At him annoying him. Saying like. You're doing all this stuff for your wife. But I'm the other woman here. Yeah. And look what you're doing with me. Right. Everything like that. Even though this woman is dead. And everything like that. Like making his subconscious feel jealous. Or like angry about what the actions he's done. Mm-hmm. So And we got back to Sammy Jenkins' story. And everything like that. And we see the tests that. Lenny puts him through to see if he can be conditioned to make new memories and everything. And it's the electric shock of, like, picking up objects in a doctor's office and everything like that. It's funny. The doctor who plays the doctor in this uh, scene, the actor plays him, um, is the doctor in Dark Knight Rises. Oh. When he says, uh, he does, like, I don't remember, I don't remember, like, uh, there's no, uh, there's no uh, bone marrow damage in your knees. Oh, that's good. Because there is no marrow in your knees, uh, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> and he goes on a list of all the injuries he's occurred over as being Batman. He's like, I cannot recommend you to do hella skiing. <laughs> and if you watch Reno 911, he's the lead uh, cop in that. With the one with the super short shorts. Oh, God. Yes. Um, and I, I love... Uh, there's more Batman uh, like tropes that show up here and later in the movie. Um, we see... Uh, Leonard trying to justify to Natalie, like, how he knows certainties. Like, he's like, I, I knock on wood, I know how that feels, I pick up glass, I know how that feels, and everything like that. And the point, I think, of that scene is that certainties are not certain. Because he says, I will know when I've, I've achieved my vengeance. I will just subconsciously know. Mm-hmm. But we know... That's not true. It's not true. Yeah. And because he does kill Jimmy thinking he does it, but it doesn't remember that. And he kills Teddy thinking he's got it right and everything like that. And he kills other two other guys thinking yeah, that it's the, the one. All right, so like with that, we're bringing that up. Do you think Teddy's telling the truth at the end? I do think so, yes. I do too. And I know it's a question I think we had. We, we had a little bit of a disagreement with Lee about yes. that. Because he doesn't think, because he's, 
because he's been so two-faced up until this point or he's like told half truths that only the audience knows but Lane doesn't remember obviously it makes you question his the validity of everything he said up to this point right I I, I, I kind of get that but at the same time I don't want to believe it because I don't think that's Nolan's purpose. No. I think I think the purpose of the the ending is to say, look, I'm the cop that helped get you out of mm. your situation. I've done all this crap for you. Yeah. And now you you're still crazy. You're never gonna uh you're never gonna be satisfied. And I think that's the that's the message that the film is trying to get you. Just that even though you think you've got revenge and you're going to be happy, you're not going to be happy. It's fleeting. Yeah. Which is a very downbeat ending. Yes. And it's, I think, like, I don't know if it's more downbeat than the following ending where, like, the young man is uh, hoodwinked at the end by both of them, like the blonde and... Um, the young men are, are hoodwinked by Cobb and everything that, like that. That's a pretty down ending, but it's like almost both of them sort of had it coming. Yeah, and I think you appreciate Cobb's uh, ingenuity at, that, at the end of the movie. Yes. And I think that's why the slow motion shot of him like disappearing in the crowd at the very end, I think that works to really nail that point home. And it's funny, the young man is never identified in the... In the screenplay, mm-hmm. he's just referred to as a young man, even when he says his name is Bill or Tim at that point, because he says two different names to both Cobb and the blonde, and the blonde is just simply known as the blonde woman and everything, which is something else I'll bring up a little bit later when it comes to women. Like, that's going to be a recurring theme with Nolan, that Nolan's not right the greatest women in his movies. They're kind of plot devices and everything like that. That's, and I think it's like if there's one consistent criticism or like one criticism you could have on his work, it's probably that. Yeah. And every filmmaker has their flaws and everything like that. I mean, as much as I love David Fincher, a lot of his movies are very nihilistic and downbeat and everything like that. And it's just like I love Fight Club. I feel like that's just. It just I think it just sent the wrong message to a generation of men and everything like that. <laughs> um what have you anyway and going back to memento and i realized something when remember the movie 51st dates yes this is 51st dates is a comedic version of memento yes i think so and i'm like oh my um, god you know and there were i remember when 51st dates came out because i when the movie first came out, and even still now, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Not as funny we're... as the first time you watch it. No, but, but it's, a, it's a good Adam Sandler yeah, movie. Yeah, it's a very good Adam Sandler movie. Um, well, there was a lot of talk, like, is this more Memento or is this more Groundhog Day? And I think it's more Memento. Yes. And because the same question brought up in 50, the question brought up in 51st stage is something that Lane should ask himself, mm-hmm. is that... What happens when he wakes up t- 10 years now, 20 years now, and he's right. going to be look so aged in the mirror, and he's going to say, what happened to my life? Like, mm-hmm. you lived your life, you just don't remember it. And it's like, and just how sad that is. And also, 
how how Amazon's got to keep updating that video that every couple of years to inform Drew Barrymore who she is and everything like that. Well, at least with digital technology and nonlinear editing, it's become a lot easier. Yes, very easy and everything <laughs> like that. Um, and then, like, at this time, we finally, because we hear about what happened to um, Leonard's wife, and, like, and finally we get to see the first flashback to it. And the first flashback to the actual attack. And the reason why I bring this up and why I think it's very important is because we see it in, like, flash frames and everything. It's not really clear. And it's punctuated by a very loud noise every time the flash frame came, comes up. And something that Nolan would carry over again into Batman Begins, every time Bruce has an experience with, bat, with bats, you'd have, like, cut to him while he's at the bottom of the well and the bats swarming around him with their screeching at, at a high octave and everything like that. And you're just like, okay, I can see where that came from, and that seed was planted in this movie. And it's like, I'm gonna, I like that technique. I'm gonna keep using it again in a later <laughs> movie. I'm sure it'll come in handy. Um, and so we keep going back, and we end up in Dodd's room after Teddy's shown up and everything. And this is when I realized Joe Pazzoliano as Teddy is hilarious. Yes. And like, you almost kind of wish. That whole movie was just that scene <laughs> of the the hijinks that were in Sue. <laughs> I mean, like how good, like 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 and it's kind of like it's pretty much like Fifty First Dates, and it's like just having the conversation. They have to keep having it over and over again. And it's, I can't remember like uh, how often when we were up in our speaking, we would quote Fifty First Dates. Like, like, like I had an accent. Oh my god. Hi, I'm Ted. Hi, I'm Ted. <laughs> Tom. 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 It was Ten Tom. second Tom. Ten second Tom. That's right. Uh, why do I think of Jackson? If I think of that of that of that moment specifically. I've got a couple of reasons, but I don't think either of them are. Oh, <laughs> sir. All right, I don't think I'm going to come to a joke that's going to top that. You, you, you. My hat's off to you for the comedy gold of this hour and everything like that. Who thought such a super serious movie was going to generate uh, sexual inadequacy jokes and everything like that? <laughs> <laughs> and the previous scene, we get to see uh, Lenny take a shower in Dodd's room, uh, hotel, uh, motel room. And, like, how weird would it be, like, this weird memory guy that Jimmy's probably talked about shows up in your room, your bathroom, naked after taking a shower and it starts attacking you. Yeah, that's got... <laughs> that's got to be... Awkward. Yeah, I mean, like, imagine, like, Dodd driving out of town later in the day, like, I'm not going to tell anybody that a naked man uh, caused me to leave town. I lost to a naked man With no memory. who was in the shower who can't remember a thing. You know, I, you know what I remember? I remember just feeling a slap on the inside of my thigh. I was like, oh, God, no. By the way, this is a small nitpick thing, but how does the bottle of booze not break when he hits him over the head with it? Well, that's the thing, like... Most bottles are very hard. Like, liquor bottles are very strong and everything like that. You don't need to tell me that they're strong. Yeah. <laughs> Test this, you fucking quack. Um, no, I just ask Pup how, how hard are bottles and everything like that. Did he get hit? He got hit in the face. Pup, I shouldn't, I should have expected that. <laughs> yeah, but like the very last, my very last semester in Oswego, he got he got clocked in the face in the bottle. 
You know that story, right? No. You never heard that story? Oh, story time, people. Sorry, this is going to be a sidebar in the Memento review and everything. It is the first party that we're at in like the very last spring semester I am there. Oh, we're boy. at L6. L6. Yes, and everybody's having a good time and everything like that. Um, pretty sure Jackson's cousin was up for that weekend and everything like that. Pop is upstairs and... This kid, Taylor, who's kind of drunk and everything like that, gets into it with Pup and cracks Pup across the face with a bottle. Um, no cuts. I think it, I don't know if it breaks or not, but I think, like, uh, no cuts or anything like that. Jackson starts throwing haymakers, and they start to get into a scuffle. Jackson, <laughs> like, one hand, like, tosses Pup down the flight, so he has to get the fuck out of the house and everything. They get into their punching, and they get separated. Jackson's white beard gets ripped and everything like that. He storms downstairs. Suffer crew, we're moving out now. And all of us are just like, what? what? So we all storm out and everything like that. I'm holding back Tones and Banks, who I've just known for maybe three days at this point. <laughs> I'm holding them back so they don't go in there and jump this kid and everything like that. So we all go back to Cayuga and we're just like, and I, and I quote the thing at the end. I'm like, first goddamn uh, week of winter. And we're getting to fights. And I'm like, this is a great start to our semester and everything like that. Flash forward. Well, I was up disconnected you two weeks ago. Oh, yes. How was that? It was fun. Uh, except, except for like this one event that I'm, I'm about to bring up. Now, it's the kid that did this, Taylor, like Brandon Phillips is like best friend and everything like that. Mm, Brandon Phillips. That's a good name. Yes. Good kid. Yes. And... I guess it's his, I don't know if it's his wife or his fiance or his girlfriend that he lives with in Schenectady. Very nicely, wonderful place, very hospital to us when we watched the Oswego uh, hockey game before he went out that Saturday. Um, Taylor was there, and like they've since said sorry and everything's like bygones be bygones at this point. Um, game's over. UFC like feed the our legal uh, UFC feed's not working. Everything like that. and we're all kind of falling asleep at this point, sitting there. And we all kind of like, like one, I think Jackson or Sebastian stands up like, all right, either there's only two ways this night's going to go right now. Either A, we call it and we go back to our place and we call it a night. This is like 1130 at this point. Or B, we get uh, a Red Bull and vodka and we, and we fucking rage. <laughs> Option B was taken. Obviously. Uh, and we didn't go down to the pub that's nearby. We went to another bar and everything like that. And since I'm the designated driver, so of course I go with them. And I do not have my... Leather jacket, I just have my hoodie with me, and it's Oswego weather outside. It is frigid. And so we're just like, oh, let's get inside, let's get inside, let's get inside. So we go into the bar, and I'm like, no other place is charging cover. This place did. So I'm like, all right, fine. I'm a little pissed. Oh, that's right. You went up two weeks. Yeah, it was called that weekend. Yes. And so we're at this bar and everything. Look, that tail is with us and everything. Everybody's getting like more and more drunk. I want to get out of there, but I'm the, I'm stuck being designated driver, so we have to wait until they're done. We close out the bar at two in the morning. Very good. I'm proud. I'm not. I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm agitated. <laughs> now earlier while we're at this bar, like Terrell had brought his like uh tobacco and rolling papers, rolled a cigarette, went outside, smoked it, came back inside, and it is one fifty five at this point, and like ding ding, last call, everybody. I'm like, oh thank God we can get out of here. Um <laughs> Taylor is now pretty obliterated at this point, talking to Sebastian. Lights up his second cigarette in the bar. And it's just... Oh, no. Just puffing away, having a conversation. Bar Bartender's like, Yo, what the fuck? This ain't 1986. You can't smoke this in here. Taylor slowly stands up. 
takes a nice drag on it, exhales all of it in the bartender's and starts throwing punches. Solid. Yeah, it's funny. I told the story exactly on last night's episode of Boondock Saints, so people are going to hear the story twice in one. I just realized that I apologize, folks. Justin hasn't heard this one. That's what first post for. Yeah, and so bounces the bartenders, grab him and everything, and he's like trying to throw punches, and like all of us, like simultaneously, turn our back, like we do not know this guy, and then he fell down the flight of stairs outside. Do you know this man? Nope. Never seen him before in my life. <laughs> I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and we think he got back okay, but we're just like, <laughs> we don't know for sure. We don't know if he, like, I don't know, froze to death or anything. It's it's like The Shining. We just cut to, like, Jack Nicholson in the snow. It's like... <sighs> anyway, back to Memento. Where were we? Uh, uh, Lenny uh, went naked uh, attacking Dodd. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um... The next scene we see the foot chase between him and Don and everything like that. Like, I'm chasing this guy. Turns. No, he's chasing me as he's firing his gun at him and everything like that. We see Lenny jump in the Jaguar and get out of there. Now, this is where it's funny because the like, camera is looking down the alley as Lenny peels out, out onto the street. Across the street is a comic book store. And there's two comic book logos in the window. Batman. And Superman. Or is it Batman versus Superman? Um, <laughs> and it's ironic because and that's like this is the second Batman logo I think that was kind of like unintentional like the, the Batman logo on oh yeah that was totally intentional yes. on the young man's door in the following I think this is just unintentional at this point and it's funny that because people have seen other references like that unintentional easter eggs and I am legend there's a Batman and Superman logo in Times Square in one of the buildings with like the Superman logo and the Batman, like, on top of each other. Very much like how the BVS logo actually turned out to be for the movie. And I think that was kind of, like, a hint that... I think that was supposed to be, like, potentially Christian Bale and Brandon Routh, who played Superman in Superman Returns, was supposed to eventually be. But it didn't end up like that. He ended up being the Adam on Arrow in Legends of Tomorrow instead. Hey, you know, she looks a lot like my cousin. <laughs> um... Next scene, we see the remnants of Lenny burning the, his wife's stuff and everything. And this is a question I ask. Like, how much do you think of, Len, of his wife's stuff he's burned over the, like, the past like two years he's been doing this? A lot. Yeah. And I, and I'm, it's I, like how much stuff of hers does he still have? I presume that's the last of it. Is it, is it even her stuff? I think the book and the clock is probably hers. Everything else I do not know. And there's one thing in the screenplay that kind of like he like he gets very agitated because like in this couple of scenes like he hires an escort to pretend to be his wife, just lay in bed and wake him as she closes the door and just to rethink replay out that memory of what happened that night. Um in the screenplay, when she, like, he gives her like the brush to like put out around the motel room, where the rest of the other of her stuff and everything like that, she goes to brush her hair with it, and Lane's like, "No!" and gets very agitated with her. In the movie, I think that kind of doesn't really work because he's like, "No, no, don't do that." He doesn't really get too agitated with it, and I think it kind of undermines that scene a little bit. I don't know. That's just me. Oh no, because it's like <clears throat> he obviously doesn't want this. Uh, escort to use his wife's stuff almost like I don't want to say 
defile it, but... Soil it! <laughs> yeah, sure. Soil it! Um, <laughs> she does go into the bathroom afterwards, so maybe she did soil it. Who knows? No, she went about the use of cocaine. <laughs> My, My cocaine! cocaine. <laughs> so I go into the bathroom... As Jim Jeffries would say, <laughs> to do a lot of cocaine off the toilet seat. I turn on, there's a 12-inch black cock talking, touching me in the stomach. I said, I only want coke. Well, you could have coke and cock. <laughs> but I only want coke. <laughs> so we did coke. We went back to the bar. It was fine afterwards. It, we'd all laughed about it. But for comedy's sake, he raped me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Somebody's going to give me a one-star review on iTunes because of this joke now. Anyway, and I wonder, is this like the strangest call this call goal has had to deal with? The strangest John she's ever had to deal with. This movie takes place in L.A.? It's in California. Somewhere in California. Yeah. I'm sure she's had a fair share of strange people. Yeah, and and just just thinking about it, like, I wonder, like, she goes back to the escort, like, I had a doozy tonight. (laughs) This dude had tattoos of random shit all over himself. It is woman to sleep next to him and close the door. Easy 150 bucks I made that night. Do you think those two had sex? I don't think so. Because he does say, was it good for you too? Yeah, I, I, but, but I, think that, I think that's point. I think that's tongue-in-cheek? Yeah. Okay. Because they didn't really do anything. I think that's the point of the joke. It's weird because we, we we it's weird because we get the punchline before we get the setup because since the movie's going That's reverse also order. That's true. But there there's a lot of times where, like, it'll set up. No one will set up a scene in the movie. It happens also with um, him and Natalie where they're talking, mm-hmm. and then cut away the next time you see them, they're lying in bed together. Yeah. So and I think you're on the side. Are you on the side that he slept with Natalie? Yeah. Okay. See, that's why I'm saying it's a possibility he still could have slept with the uh, the escort. Yeah. And like, the only question I ask that is because like, she has all of her clothes back on at that point. Yeah, well, so does Natalie. Good point. So I think that's... That's more ambiguous. I think it's more. It definitely leans more to be more definite with Natalie's situation, because how? Then again, how would we know? Mm-hmm. We're going up, like we're dealing with the most unreliable narrator. Yeah. Since probably I don't know, a Catcher in the Rye at this point. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> oh. Uh, I, I, al- I do these podcasts to have enjoyment and, and get it's away an al- from... No, it, let's, it's, it's an alternative narrator. <laughs> Actually, I came up with a short film that I'm, I'm trying to get done before SNL this Saturday. Oh, God. And it's like a guy's like, two guys, one guy's sitting on the couch, another one comes in and goes, dude, we're being spied upon. What? What do you mean? We're being spied upon? I found out where the camera is. Where? Come with me. Run in the kitchen. <gasps> It's a microwave. And it's like, you may think I'm crazy or anything. Like that. And it cuts to the guy, the first guy, driving his car away like, crazy bastard! <laughs> and I'm going to shoot, shoot and edit it on my iPhone so I can have it up before uh, SNL on Saturday. I'm just trying to find people to, to do this with. I need, I, need, I need fucking actors. I need two people. 
And so I'm trying to get Larry. I think Larry is a possible one. Yeah. Before he also goes up to Schenectady. Yes. On a permanent basis. Larry, you've let us down again. You've abandoned us. You were the chosen one! You said you would destroy us, Seth, not join them! Bring balance to the force! Not leave it in darkness! And no, before you ask, I've not finished uh, uh, Star Wars Oxygen. Hey, have you finished Star Wars Oxygen? No, because I have like 14 other podcasts I listen to on the reg, okay? So I balance them because I don't want to... You haven't missed much. There hasn't been a new episode since... The end of December. Yeah, which I, I, I kind of wonder. Like, you figured they would have gotten at least one of them out before Star Wars Celebration. I think he's playing a lot on on Star Wars Celebration. Which does a lot for everybody else that the supporting Rebel Force Radio. <laughs> anyway, have you listened to any of the other shows on Rebel Force Radio? You know, I, I've listened to a couple of the episodes, just like the normal episodes. Like the flagship show? Yeah. Okay. It's not too bad. Um, and certainly... I paid a lot of attention once the uh, to the um, Rogue One episodes, but like I want to say the past two weeks they've released episodes, and I haven't really cared for it. I'm just I I just want more oxygen. Of course, I I think I think most people want more <laughs> yeah. oxygen. I mean, especially drowning people. Anyway, back to the, back to the review. Um, you get to see a scene where. Uh, <laughs> Natalie gets Lenny to attack her. Yeah. And I think it's obviously the most, the strongest part of of Carrie Ann Moss's performance in the movie because she gets to really emote in this scene. And it's just like how fucking vulgar she is. Oh, yeah. And it's the thing is like Nolan, like he drops the F-bomb a lot in the first two screenplays and following, not not a lot, not not like Quentin Tarantino or anything like that, but he drops it a bunch of times in this and in following and everything like that. And it's just something that you would, wouldn't really bring... Like, it's the first three movies where the F-bomb was dropped a bunch of times. After that, he doesn't really do that anymore. And do you think it's just him maturing as a storyteller? Um, I I don't know. I think... um. Well, and... Uh, I would have to go back and, and watch... um. Insomnia again, because I, I can't remember how... Uh, he didn't write it. That's true. He was, he's a hired gun for that. Yeah, which probably was why it's not that good. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. I think it's just like... It's... It's just compared to everything else. else. It's, yeah. It's the weakest of his films. Yeah. But, um... Uh, the... Which were the first three screenplays? It like what was it, like uh, following, following Memento, and then Insomnia comes after, which he did not write. Right, uh, and then it was he? I think he worked on the story for Batman Begins, but David Goyer actually wrote Batman Begins. Hmm. And then he him and no, him and Jonah wrote um, Dark Knight and Rises together. Okay. And which is another thing, like I got to get like there's they have the he dark... wrote the Prestige, right? Or was that it was his... based off a book. book? I don't know if he did the adaptation of it. I got I got to double check. Okay. Um, which reminds me, I got to get the screenplays for the Dark Knight trilogy. It comes mm-hmm. in like this one, like it's like the size of a goddamn Bible, like in paperback form and everything. Like that, because all three movies are very long, <laughs> long. Um, what do you think of that scene where 
Natalie gets a uh, lane to attack her. Uh, I think it's the the turning point of the movie where you sort of stop trusting. <clears throat> sorry, where do you s- start to stop putting your trust in in Leonard over what is really going on here? Because this woman appears to be uh, not too sane in either of these scenes. No. Um, and you're right. It's it's very, especially the, the the. I always have a difficult time trying to uh, differentiate these scenes. Mm. The chronologically earlier one, mm. where he like just rips him apart. Mm. That one, she's like completely nuts. Yes, and. It's almost you start to see the story more through the eyes of Teddy and less through uh, the eyes of <clears throat> excuse me mm-hmm. uh, less through the eyes of Lenny. Yeah, and and she does get she does manipulate him up to the point that he does attack her and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And I think in the screenplay he he does, I think he attacks her more than once. I think like he throws a few blows and everything like that. Well, yeah, th- this is a strange thing. The line uh, in the first flashback where he's at her house, he goes, what happened? And she says, what do you think happened? He beat the shit out of me. But she's just got like a bloody nose and no bruises anywhere else. She, uh, she had, like, he had grabbed her like by the mouth and like yanked her and then he does throw one punch. Right. And you kind of figured that maybe he, like, a few punches to the face and maybe a gut shot or two or something like that. Yeah, like, when someone says, I got beat up, you're expecting, like, bruises everywhere. You know, not just, like, a little bit of a nosebleed, which is what she had in on film. Yeah. In the screenplay, you read it. So, do you remember how exactly they describe how she looks? Does the movie give it, uh, an accurate portrayal of that? I think it does. Okay. But just like the gangs at that point, I think was a little more elaborate than how it was um, portrayed on film. Maybe because they like maybe they cut a cut back on it on the day because they didn't want it, it would make Lang too unsympathetic at that point, mm. which could be a decision like on like while they're doing the blocking of it, and they realize this wouldn't work this way. Maybe we should change it. And then that's one thing that like Nolan is very specific in, in his construction of all of his movies, but. He's willing to let actors find their moments and everything like that and let it be play out naturally and everything like that. I mean, a lot of things of his stuff comes naturally. I mean, even look at the lighting of his movies. Like, It's never like too stylized and everything. Everything looks like very natural. Everything looks like it's sun coming through a window or just like practicals in the room illuminating it and stuff like that. And so after that, we find out more about Sammy, Sammy Jenkins and everything like that, that Sammy's wife asks uh, Lenny, does he really think that he's faking it? And he's like, no, but I, I, I don't think he's faking it. I think like he can make new memories. And we see that before his accident that he would give his wife insulin and everything, like give her insulin and everything in, in shot form. And we see that she does it over and over again, telling him that I need my insulin, I need my insulin to see if he would snap out of it or learn doesn't she goes into a coma and eventually dies in this story anyway 
same time we get to see Natalie early on when they first introduced to first to inter, like uh, Lenny introduced to her, uh, her. And it's weird. She becomes less attractive as the movie goes on. Like she becomes more not necessarily like just like she's just ugly or anything like that, but she seems like she was like earlier on in the story, later on for the viewers to see it, she's wearing more and more makeup, like heavy eyeliner and everything like that. And I think like it's a deliberate choice because her character just goes from like we see her at first time just kind of like battered and everything like that and she you kind of like almost sympathize of like why like like somebody did this to her and everything like that and but by the time like after what how we've seen them manipulate him and uh lenny at this point that her character becomes soiled and like become dark darker clothes and everything like that do you think that's a coincidence or do you think that's the that's an, a genuine choice on the filmmaker's part i actually didn't notice that when i was watching it mm. um i could be reading into it i do not know I I think it's 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 a good argument. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that uh, a director has played with that concept, but I, um, I didn't notice it. Mm. And then, like running down to the end, the end of the movie, we get to our final black and white sequence where we finally realize where John G is, the person who's responsible for it. Leonard in like plaid clothes and everything like that goes out. We sees. Teddy for the first time, everything theoretically first time, goes out to the derelict, derelict ha- uh, building where the movie opens with, and we see a few times. We finally meet Jimmy, and Leonard kills him, takes a picture of him, and then realizes something's wrong, something's not right about this. Teddy shows up, looks at the jag, trying to get the money that's out of the back seat, out of the trunk, and everything like that, attacks him. Takes Jimmy's clothes and everything like that, and leaves him. And during the scene, we have the big revelation that John G, the actual other assailant, was murdered a year ago. That Leonard's already killed him. Uh, there's an old picture of him pointing to the ch- point on the only part of his chest that has been tattooed. And we get to see, like he told early in the movie, I was going to get a tattoo that says, "I did it. It's done." There. And we see that in like a possible like flash forward with like him sitting on his bed and his wife laying on his chest with that tattoo saying I did it on there. And and I always have this kind of question at the end of the movie. Um Does Lenny remember at that point? I don't think so. I really don't think he does. And, or just, and he doesn't really think like, he conditions himself to just kind of forget and everything like that. I think he's he's so mentally fragile mm. that he just doesn't remember ever any of it. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't remember. Right. So I think. I think Teddy is telling the truth about everything that happened. Even though the one thing we don't really see is how do we know Teddy is a cop? We like we see him take out a badge and flash it to we don't we don't get a close up of it, but he does flash it and then Lenny rips it out of his pocket and he says, You are a fucking cop. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
And plus, he has a service revolver on him that yes. Lenny takes away from. Granted, that could just be a gun and everything like that, but that's more uh, akin to cops and everything like that to a certain point. But go on. So I, I do think that he is telling the truth. I think that as a as an effect of his condition, he just can't process it mm. in the correct way. So that's why, you know, over and over again, he just cycles through creating a puzzle he's never going to solve, mm. in the words of, of Teddy. Mm. And he even says, like, I'll make you my next John G and everything. Yeah. Like that. And it begs the question, what happens after the movie's over? What happens to Lenny? That's the big, like, the big question mark. Like, See, here's the thing, though. If you... The movie sort of just loops itself. Yeah. It's sort of a, an infinite feedback loop. Yeah. Because you watch the movie, and then if you were to pick up the action right from where the movie left off, you would get exactly what you just saw, except in chronological order. Yeah, right. so we go back to the very first scene when he kills. We never see anything else progress after that. I'm talking about right. like what would happen theoretically after that So scene. before the movie... Yes. <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, I just don't know what happens to him at that point. That's the big question I have at the end of that movie. I mean, that's just a re- reoccurring thing that happens with Nolan's uh, filmography at that point. Like, what happens after the end of The Prestige? What happens to the Joker at the end of The Dark Knight and everything like that? Uh, within the context of the story and not after Heath Ledger's passing and everything like that. Um. But let's move into characters and like that and, and everything. Your feelings on Guy Pierce's uh Lenny. Um probably the strangest character that Nolan has come up with. Yeah. Um cuz you, you as you said, you really can't trust the narrator at all. And especially the more the movie goes on, the more you know as a viewer that this guy can't really be trusted. No. And even though a lot of the movie is him defending why he believes in his his methods and his process, halfway through the movie, you're just like, but, but everything is going wrong. Yeah. It's, you have no control. And it does shed light on, you know, people who actually do have to live with that sort of disease and how they have to live their life. But at the same time, t- same time, takes it to a level or a situation where you probably say, this is exceptionally weird, even for a case like this, where, you know, I'm sure there's a decent percentage of a population who do have short-term memory loss, mm-hmm. can't remember, you know, an hour before what happened. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't place good money that a lot of them are trying to uh, find and murder the man who allegedly killed their wife. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do agree. It's probably the strangest role that, um, that Nolan came up with. And this whole thing came out of a conversation when him, his brother Jonathan, were going from Chicago to Los Angeles and it was a cross-country trip. And, Jonathan came up with like this idea for a story where a guy can make new memories and everything like that. And both of them kind of like spitballed the idea on this entire trip. And they both went off and 
Jonathan wrote the story into Memento Mori, and Nolan and Christopher Nolan, uh, Chris wrote uh, the script, and they're very different from each other while having certain similarities and everything like that. And with Guy Pierce's performance, he has a very natural and kind of welcome and like. And I think it's because of his condition that he kind of makes him slightly naive to the world and everything. It's very easy for the audience to be on his side at the beginning of the movie and get behind him and you feel bad for him and his condition and everything and want the best for him. And it's throughout the movie, like, it's weird to think about it. It's like, we're shown to be Teddy to be dirty in the very beginning of the movie as the viewer. As the movie goes along, we have to see more light is shed on him to make him sound more truthful and more trustworthy. And this, and with Lenny and both Natalie, they start off as potentially good people. As the movie goes along, we get to see them deteriorate into kind of deplorable characters as the movie goes along. Same thing with Bert. We see him as a nice guy and everything like that. And he turns out to be kind of like a kind of a crooked dude near the end because yeah. we find out that he's a lookout for Jimmy as he's dealing with drugs out of the discount inn. But Guy Pierce's performance is really strong and I think could have gone horribly wrong if it was miscast. Mm. I mean, it had to play a fine line of it not being like like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, like George Woomy did attend the rabbits or anything like that. Um that he's too, like, all right, come on, like, you can take care of yourself. Like, you should be able to take care of yourself. You're a grown man, grand, you can't make new memories and everything like that. But he does have a certain confidence amongst it. And there's a lot of humor between him and Joe Pazliano yeah. and everything. And with bringing him up, your feeling on his performance as Teddy. Uh, <laughs> I liked it a lot more on the second viewing of it. Uh, partly because I, I already know, knew what was going, going to, to happen. happen. Um... But yeah, there's a lot of uh, lot of good lines you miss, like mm. when you first watch it. What I really took away from the second viewing was, uh, again, how much like he really follows Lenny, like yeah, and how much humor is created from just like him popping out of the middle of nowhere, mm. like when he's in the car, like when he jumps out right in front of his car right before it's going to pull away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the scene in the in the motel um, when they have, uh, what's his name, tied up? Oh, Dodd. Dodd. Yeah. And he's just like, what the fuck is he doing here? I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Like, he's like, like, you know... I've had I've had uh, more rewarding relationships than than this one. I get to tell the same jokes over and over again. Like that that's like uh, you would do that. That sounds like our friendship. Yes, it definitely does, for sure. And then, and Joe Paziano and Kieran Moss were both in the Matrix before this, and Joe was kind of concerned about being a or like if it was not him or one of the producers saying it would, it would tip the hand too easily everybody expect him to be the bad guy because he was the bad guy in one of the biggest movies the year prior. And but no one's like no 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 I think you got the right and he has the right amount of charm and everything like that and welcoming us to it and I love like in the script they described it as a shit eating grin yeah. and he does have a giant grin throughout the most of the movie and it's like yeah <laughs> especially with that Polaroid we keep coming to a close up to throughout the entire yeah <laughs> it's just as giving us like a dead eye can that be the thumbnail for uh, no for the the podcast no. 
So I want people to actually listen to it, not be turned off by it. I want to turn on to it, not turn off, you know. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, so Bazzano's performance, tremendous. And it's one of the things, it's the most rewarding thing of this movie is watching it more, more on repeating viewings and seeing his performance as throughout the movie and everything. As you know how the movie ends for the viewer and unchronological order for Lenny and everything like that. But, um, yeah, so I think it's really strong. Your feelings on Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie? Really, really gripping performance. Yeah. Especially the, the, the scene where she curses out, um, Lenny and just, yeah. Rips him apart. That might be the most intense dialogue that Nolan has ever written. Yeah, and, like, I'm trying to think of, like, Another really good scene, like, is actually in The Prestige when Christian Bale's wife says, I know what you are, hmm. near the end of the movie, and, like, reveals, like, what, who she's really talking to, I should say, and everything like that. Like, I love that moment specifically, and, and I, think, I think it's a weird parallel with this scene, but go on. Now, uh, uh, um, it's almost like you, you want to find out more about what happens to them afterwards. I think a, a large part of that is what happens to Natalie, too. Yeah. Because um, even though it's... She's kind of already caused enough um, trouble for Leonard already, but you kind of get the feeling that she's not done with him. No. Until... Um, I, I want to say he ends up dying because you just get the, the feeling that the animosity and he, the way she, she treats him throughout the, uh, the, the first couple of times they meet, it's just, it's just really, really bad. So you think that she's going to keep using him after? I, I think if the story would continue, Yes. Which is like, I, I can totally see that happening. I was wondering, like, what would she, like, I assume she'd probably use him to be muscle for something like that. And I wonder if she would continue the drug dealing business and have Lenny as her muscle for it and everything like that. Curious about that now. And, yeah, I think Carrie Ann Moss is really good in this movie. Um, she does get, her, like, nice emotional beats and stuff like that. I know, as we said before, women in Nolan movies are kind of like the weak point and everything like that. And she's given a decent amount to do. That like she's, she's not like Sarah Connor or Ellen Ripley or anything like that. She's like she's a star of the movie, but that one scene where she tears Leonard down and like to get him to uh, to attack her and everything like that gets to show the range of an actress that she really is. And not just getting her to attack her, but before that, she hides all the pens in the room. Yeah, which and I think they explain it in the movie where. Um, she had already found out, I think from Teddy, that this guy needs to write everything down. Yeah. In order to remember things. Because the second scene she deals with him, she calls him Memory Man. Yeah. Presumably, Jimmy has told him, Joe told her about this guy. Because he's hanging out with Teddy, who he thinks is an undercover cop. Yeah. Uh, thinks he's an, thinks he's a, as a dealer and everything like that. But, um, and like... 
she hides them all in her pocketbook and everything like that. And we see that in the setup. And you're like, what the hell like, is she doing? And then find out what really was. She's like, oh, shit. Um, you only need a really significant character. We don't really get to see Dodd that much. So we don't really need to talk about him. Uh, Bert was... I think it's just funny and nice comic relief every now and then. Yeah. Um, your feelings in this movie versus following? I like it more than following. Okay. Um, certainly better acting. Yeah. Because a little bit of a bigger budget. Yeah, $6,000 versus yeah. $4.5 million. Yeah, and... It shows. Yes. And... Uh, not too many effects in this movie, so if any effects at all, other than the, the optical effects of the actual yeah. the, the the shell casing that was supposed to happen normally. So I, uh, a lot of that budget went probably towards the cast and the actual production. Yeah, the the shooting and the cinematography cinematography of the movie. Yeah, I mean, like the first movie was shot by Nolan himself on sixteen millimeter black and white film. This would start the relationship between him and Wally Pfister, which would be. Nolan's consistent cinematographer up until Interstellar. He shot everything from... He shot this, Insomnia, the Dark Knight trilogy, the Prestige, and Inception, which he'd win an Oscar for for Best Cinematography for. And then like, they were split ways, so he could become a director and direct that movie transcended to a giant depth. Yeah. His career transcended after that, that's for sure. I, I don't know you. <laughs> oh, fuck you! You know what? <laughs> Where do you get off at, like, calling bullshit out of my puns, sir? Um... I don't know. As, that's what I thought. I don't know. Um, Touché. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I think like it definitely it's a huge step up for quality wise and everything like that. First, the first movie. Not saying the first movie is bad or anything like that, but you just know it. it, it yeah, this is. I don't want to say it looks like a a quote real film. Yeah, but I it's mean, a prof- professional. It's feeling. a professional. Yeah, there's there's a feeling about um, following mm-hmm. where it's just like. You can tell this is someone's first film. Yeah. Just like how it's shot. is a lot of, um, I think the black and white plays a factor in it. Also, handheld, a lot of it handheld. A lot of the handheld stuff. Um, did they use sound stages for a? For that movie, or was everything like? I think everything much... was everything was real locations. Okay, like the yeah. only like real like set was like the interrogation room, and the reason why they did that is because that's actually at the university he went to school. At the film, uh, the the film like historian lab there, which he used to run, had a dolly, a camera dolly, but it was so big they couldn't get out of the door, <laughs> so. Like, all right, we'll stage the scene here and we'll use the dolly in this scene to make it look more professional looking. So everything else that's shot on tripods or handheld for the rest of it would, all right, that's that's a choice. And everything, the, the nice control, everything would make, show the opening scene to be very professional looking. And that's the scene with his uncle. Yes. Who looks suspiciously like Ian McKellen. Yes. Okay. Um, And then the thing, like with this, like, and... Going back to what we were saying before, that Nolan's a very purist and everything like that. Now, 
we got super technical right here, so I'm going to put the... Uh, hi. Here, hold on. Take uh, my glasses. Yes, I was going to say. There you put, go. Might the, be a little bit small. Okay. Put up the glasses <laughs> on my nose. Like, oh, your, your vision's not too bad. I mean, I can't see a thing on my phone. I'm trying to Snapchat this. Let's see if I can actually click on the app. You want, you want the glasses back so you can open up the app? No, okay. I got it. All right, so I'm going to continue having the conversation. <laughs> so this movie was shot anamorphic and not Super 35, which is kind of like you take an extraction of of your full-frame image to mm. have widescreen. Anamorphic is you're actually squeezing a full widescreen image on a square plane and everything like that. But um, so And this is the first movie we shot anamorphically and everything, and he shoot everything else besides IMAX 65mm, everything else afterwards would be shot anamorphically because he prefers that anything that's true cinema after this point. And, yeah, if somebody hasn't turned off about the nerdiness of the technical details there. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Okay, one last question before we go into that. Where does this movie rank in the pantheon of Nolan's movies ever since this movie came out? That's a good question. Yeah. Well. <laughs> the geography of the room just came back to me right there. You know, um, I think when I first saw this movie, I put, I actually put it in my top five mm-hmm. of all-time movies. Yeah. I don't think on second viewing it had the same effect, especially when I go back and compare it to, like, a bunch of my Usual favorite movies, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, the Batman movies. Mm. Um, it would probably fall outside of the top five um, for all-time movies. But as far as Nolan movies go, I think Prestige is still my favorite. Mm. Um, you could pick any one of the of the Dark Knight movies and put that on the list. Mm. Um, on a different day, I could tell you a different one. Yeah. Um, I think I still en- enjoy Inception more than this. Right. I put it around the same level as um, Interstellar. Okay. I definitely think... So I have to watch because uh, I haven't watched Interstellar in probably about two years now. So Was the last time you watched it with, with me? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think this is possibly top five for Nolan's pantheon of movies and everything like that. It's like I still think Prestige is still my favorite of mm-hmm. his, followed by Batman Begins. And like I know it's sacrilege. I say I prefer Batman Begins over The Dark Knight and everything. Like that. <gasps> I know it's the same argument I have why I prefer New Hope over Empire Strikes Back. And one of the biggest conceits of that is if there was never a sequel to A New Hope. It still would be a great movie. Yeah. The problem with Empire Strikes Back, it ends on a cliffhanger in the true serial fashion. You knew they were going to make Return of the Jedi. Yeah. I mean, like, they're so glad that was movies successful. Like, what if it bombed and Return of the Jedi was never made? <laughs> you, know, you know what that reminds me of? The Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy. Yeah. Where the first movie was great, and if it just ended there, it would have been a great movie. Same thing with The Matrix. First Matrix, great. Yeah. Other two. See, here's... The second Pirates of the Caribbean movie is pretty much Empire Strikes Back, but yeah. with pirates. Yes. 
It ends the same way. And same thing with Pirates 3. It opens, it's the Return of the Jedi. It takes 45 minutes for the movie to start. But here, here's the here's the the crap thing about that uh, of that series. The third movie is terrible. Yeah, I, it's 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 just dark and grim. It's darker than the second movie, which anyone will tell you in a trilogy. The second movie is supposed to be the darkest. In the Pirates of the Caribbean, it's yeah. The Pirates three opens up with like the darkest opening. Oh, to yeah, his hanging Kids children, get hanged. and I mean, it doesn't get brighter than that. Yeah. <laughs> like if if. If you're expecting the movie to get brighter, if you've never seen this movie before, one, I advise you, don't. Two, if you do have it, do like I did, and if you're boiling, like, ramen noodles in a cup, use it as a cover, like Lee and I did while we were in college. I forgot about that! Ow! Fuck my head! (laughs) There's an old, like, um... Computer on the desk next to me that's been here that's been here for a while. I lean back, just crack the corner of it into my head right there. Ow! You don't. <laughs> that's what you see. This is what happens when we invoke Pirates of the Caribbean three. Yeah. Uh, inanimate see, objects attack us. Do not watch this movie. Bad things will happen. Yeah. Don't even discuss it. No, I mean, and like that—that's the one thing. Like you think of also other movies that were standalones that were turned into trilogies. Like Matrix doesn't work. Pirates of the Caribbean did not work. Back to the Future. Worked. worked and because that's because like, it was like four years in between part, uh, Back to the Future 1 and 2 so they had to, Bob Gale had time to write out enough story for it anyway but um, going back to this yeah I think this is possibly top 5 Nolan movies like everything like that I like once this is all over I will re-rank them and everything like that final thoughts on this movie terrific yeah um, if this this movie is very Christopher Nolan esque. Um, you don't say. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, as compared to like, as compared to like, um, Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises. Okay. Which is, you know, there's n- really no playing around with the the timeline in that. No. There's. You get a little bit of the femme fatale in, um, in Rises, but yes. you, you don't really get that in um, in The Dark Knight. No. In fact, probably, I, I would dare to say, um, The Dark Knight is probably the most a-characteristic I of think the it, Nolan movies. Yeah, I think it's why people gravitated to that one the most. Because it's so... Not saying it's bland or, I think, or general or anything like that. I mean... It's it's the easiest movie, if you're a casual moviegoer, to just watch it and on your first viewing yeah. comprehend. Yeah, and I think that's why like movie like It's anything, simple. Yeah. It's anything with, like, with James Cameron with Avatar. Like He made like... Like James Cameron's moved up to this point, like you had like the two Terminator movies, you have Aliens, um, True Lies, like you get like a little bit of like kind of know where Cameron's coming from when jumping into those movies. True Lies, kind of like you can kind of jump into that. Same thing with Titanic, but Avatar is so easy for you to get into, which has become kind of a, a characteristic to bash it. I think that's why it made so much money worldwide, other than like Universal like themes and everything like that, and the 
how 3D was very pushed with that movie, and that's how it made a lot of its money. Anyway, um, yeah, and I agree. Like, this is very Nolan-esque, and this is very true to form of what his, like, yeah. characteristics that would show up in later movies, and I think it's, like, him... It's really good storytelling, because it, it uses different devices from what we're really... what we really see a lot of ad nauseum from typical Hollywood movies. No, yeah, and I think it's the point of... He is a person with very specific vision, mm-hmm. yet can still make blockbuster movies. And he's one of the few people today that's able to do that. Like, like Steven Spielberg, he has a very specific vision, and he can make his smaller, more intimate movies. But then he can make a blockbuster and everything like that. There's very few people who can straddle both of those lines. Yeah, like David Fincher can make kind of his very dark and kind of movies and everything like that but he still can make a bigger movie and everything like that um like you, you could say steven soderbergh can make a magic mic and everything like that then he can make something or like the oceans movies mm-hmm. and then he can make something like contagion or something small and intimate like that or like sex lies and videotapes and everything anyway more authors and talk about so I hope everyone's enjoyed this review of Memento and our continuing series of looking back at all Christopher Nolan's movies. Justin, I want to thank you for being on the show. Anytime, Tim. Of course. And if people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter uh, at Justin Cirillo. Justin Cirillo. God, that's never going to escape me, is it? No, I mean, just like how Joe is finally getting into the office now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Poor form. <Very>. Seriously. <laughs> Um, but then again, I've never watched Parks and Rec, so there we are. Uh, you know, I've only watched the first couple of seasons. I heard like the first season's very office esque, and then like it becomes its own identity as it yeah. goes. Yeah. But go on. Um, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Justin Sterling. Usually, tweet, usually tweeting about sports these days. Some political tweets in there as well, thanks to our dear president. Yes. Um, but uh, I try to. Stick to sports as, as often as I can. Mm-hmm. Some uh, some arrows, some Lord of the Rings stuff. You know, that stuff you talk about on your podcast all the time. Right. When I can. Yeah, and um, hopefully, hoping that you, Chris, and I get together to review oh, one of the other to. CW shows. You soon. know, I I was trying to watch um, Arrow this or both Arrows and. Uh, the Flash this week on um, Tuesday when at home. Yeah, when I had a couple of days off and then weren't on my DVR, which I was not happy about. Um, I'm all caught up with Flash right now. So, like at the end of the season, theoretically, we can we can do Flash season three and everything like that. Okay. And Arrow's killing it this year. I know they have that agreement with Netflix, where as soon as isn't like as one week. Is yeah, like one week after. The season ends. It should be streaming online, which yeah. is good yes. for me. Of course, I could always try and find a way to stream it illegally online, which I can I can help you with yeah. if need be. But anywhere else can we find you on social media or just Twitter? Uh, usually just Twitter. Okay. All right then. If you want to follow me on social media, you can actually follow this podcast. Uh, anything goes at Ginger Geek Pod on Twitter. You can follow my personal Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two because some bastard got the other URL. Uh, my Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve and my Facebook and YouTube page under the same moniker of Through the Lens Productions, where one of my short films, A Cowardly Lot, is up. Where 
my, that short film has actually been in three film festivals at this point. Yay. Um, we got big plans. We have a big film. Huge. Yeah. We've got huge plans. No, no. What the fuck? Why am I, why am I even? No, 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 no. 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 No, Ugh. no God, no. 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 <laughs> As Michael Scott free, freaks out as Toby's like is in the office again. Um, uh, no, we, uh, Chris and I have very big plans involving a certain character that's part of fiction that's been brought up on the show before, and hopefully to be like a calling card for me that I can sign up to geek film festivals and everything like that. I'll tell you more off the mic and everything. Oh, does uh, Iron Fist come out tomorrow? Yes, um, I'm happy with Luke Cage. Okay, um, did it get better? Yes, first episode. Okay. It's rocky. Everything else is all the way up. Yeah. Maybe I can watch that instead of Hour in the Flesh. Because it's already on Netflix right now. Yeah, and it does get better. And since we're on iTunes now, if you feel uh, we deserve it, give us a five-star review and leave a written review because it helps get the word out and more people can enjoy the entertainment that you're enjoying right now. Thank you again for listening to this podcast review of Memento, and we'll talk to you soon.